This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Okay, I was raised in the the Mormon church. My parents were married in the Alberta temple. When they were married, they swore a blood oath to protect the church with their life. They mimed having their throat slit and being disemboweled if they didn't. They promised all their worldly goods, their talents, and all their children to the church. My, par- uh, my ancestors were polygamous. They had um, followed the teachings of the charismatic Joseph Smith, who, was the, who had started a new church in the 1800s. And Joseph Smith advocated polygamy as part of his founding doctrine. And my ancestors followed his teachings and believed that if they wanted to get into Mormon heaven, they would have to practice polygamy. Uh, They did that until the late 1800s when the Mormons had moved to Utah to be able to do this uh, without any... Um, hassles from surrounding communities. However, the, they wanted uh, statehood for Utah, and to do that, the other states said, if you want to join us, you're going to have to give up polygamy. So the uh, leaders of the church at the time had a supposed revelation that said that God had said, we're going to put this on hold. Um, you may be asked to practice polygamy again, but certainly when you die, uh, polygamy will be resumed in heaven. Men will become gods and will have rule over many worlds and have more than one wife to provide them with many spiritual children. And they were also told in the afterlife they would enjoy the pleasures of earthly sex. So the um, publicly, the mainstream Mormon church put polygamy on hold. Uh, privately, uh, polygamy in the mainstream Mormon church went on for 30 more years at least, quietly and in secret. Uh, there were groups that broke off who said, no way, we're not going to stop it. We believe this Uh, polygamy is uh, a revelation from God and we are going to continue to follow it and those break-off groups uh, you're uh, are familiar with perhaps bountiful here in BC there's many groups in the states who still practice it uh, the fundamental LDS groups growing up Um, My parents moved from Alberta when I was small, and we moved to Gibsons on the West Coast, and 
Uh, we lived there until I was 10, and um, there were, was no church congregation there. So what we did have was home Sunday school. Salt Lake would send out uh, lesson books. On occasion, we would go to Vancouver for meetings and conferences where um, I sat as a child unwillingly for many hours on a wooden bench. So I didn't have a particular love for the religion that I was told was the only true church in the world. Um, the mantra that I was taught was don't think, don't feel, and don't question. Accept and obey and take your preordained place in the patriarchal order. Patriarchal order. Uh, the books that I read were censored. The friendships that I had were monitored. It was a very closed, very narrow environment. I think I was fortunate that we had lived in Gibson's until I was 10 because it wasn't as, uh, without an organized community uh, and congregation, I had a lot more freedom than I did when we moved uh, to Richmond when I was 10. Um, significant for me, and I still remember it in, in detail. We had moved to Richmond, and uh, when I was 11, the bountiful polygamists came down to our mainstream congregation looking for brides. My oldest sister was 16. I had uh, two sisters. Um, I was the youngest uh, of a, a girl in a family of seven children. But my oldest sister was 16, and one of the polygamists who looked to me to be as old as a grandfather attempted to court my sister. And I remember watching, as a child watching this old man um, flirt with my sister, open our car door, car door, while one of his younger wives uh, struggled with, she had a diaper bag on her shoulder, she was carrying a baby, she was pregnant, she had these little toddlers, while his wife was struggling with their car door, and that really made an impression on me, and I've never forgotten it. I never did accept any of the doctrine of the church. Uh, I had no choice but to live it. My father, while he was uh, highly respected in the leadership of the Mormon church, was also a violent man. Um, as I said, it was a patriarchal society. The men were, uh, what the men said was, uh, that was it. There was no arguing with uh, my father. And so he maintained control in the family through violence. Uh, I realized when I was about 14 that if I wanted to think, learn how to think for myself, that I would have to leave my family because my family and my church, the church were one. My parents, uh, their parents were actually the church. The church told them what to do, and they told us what to do. So when I was about 14, I realized that I would have to leave 
home. And as soon as I graduated from high school, I did. Um, I left. Um, I uh, got a job. Uh, I had planned to go to university, but I uh, instead got a job, an entry-level office position in a a shared accommodation with um, other young women. And I never looked back. I wanted to block that completely uh, from my life. So I went on with my life and uh, had a family, went back to school. And fast forward to um, uh, 2002. And I see a, I'm working downtown at the time in a law firm. And there was a notice up for a presentation on polygamy. It immediately triggered my early experience and also um, much that I had blocked off and not addressed over the years. I was keen to go. I was sure that there would be so much interest that the place would be packed the uh, it was being held at SFU Harborside downtown and I thought well I better go early just to make sure I get a seat I arrive well in advance huge lectures uh, hall there are maybe four or five in the audience and Debbie Palmer was presenting and there was also a woman who had left polygamy from the states and she was there and the two gave a presentation and Debbie Palmer talked about leaving Bountiful and uh, her escape from Bountiful. She also mentioned that there was a pre-screening of the CBC Fifth Estate documentary on her experience that would be airing soon and after their presentation I went up and introduced myself and I couldn't hold myself back Um, and she invited me to the pre-screening which was uh, I believe it was two nights after it may have been I believe it was a Thursday night at the um, Jewish Community Center and so I attended, and the uh, Leaving Bountiful documentary air, uh, aired. We watched it, and at the end of it, there was a standing ovation. It was a very emotional experience. Um, and I was invited uh, by Debbie and some other women present to join a Canadian committee to... Uh, work together to lobby for change. And I said yes. Uh, There was a meeting the following morning at one of the director's homes in North Van, the director of the documentary, Helen Slinger. And so I arranged to go. Before I went in the morning, I, I called in and checked and spoke with Debbie, and she said, "I'm yes, come ahead. She said, I'm sorry if I'm a bit... Jangled, she said. I've been getting uh, email death threats uh, since the the documentary aired last night, 
and she said, my nephew's home was burned in retaliation. And I, this was a whole new world to me. I had no idea this was going on. Uh, that night, I did go over to the meeting, um, and we made plans on how we were going to proceed with uh, lobbying the government and other actions. And that night on the 6 o'clock news, sure enough, there was coverage of a house fire uh, in the Creston area, and a, a little boy, maybe two or two and a half, was being applauded as a hero for smelling the smoke and waking his family and they getting them to safety. There was no mention of Mormonism, uh, no mention of polygamy, just simply this little boy who had saved his family. Uh, so that was my introduction uh, to uh, Debbie Palmer, and it went from there. Uh, we had many conversations on the telephone. Uh, she was often looking for um, input on it, presentations and media um, appearances that she was asked to do. And, and during our conversations, uh, she talked about what went on in Bountiful. Now, the uh, documentary was made in 2002, and she had left in, I believe it was 1988. So there was a time lapse between her leaving and the documentary. But as she talked about so many sad, sad things that went on in the community, um, there were a number of death threats that she had received, but she also said uh, how much unhappiness was there. And in the documentary, there was a little boy, well, they had a, a school bus scene. And she said, you know, that little boy on the school bus, she said, he hung himself. And she said what it was passed off as was an accident. Uh, there were also, because of the close family relations and marriages and, and children, there were also uh, a lot of birth defects and disabilities. And there would be the occasional accident. There would be um, a child drowning in a bathtub, that kind of thing. So those kinds of experiences were something that she was familiar with as being part of the community. I had no reason not to, uh, to believe what she told me. She said often anyone who stepped outside or caused problems, she said there would be a farm accident of some sort. Um, so that was, uh, it was really disturbing to me and it furthered my commitment to uh, lobby and to do what, take whatever steps I could to uh, make a difference, to raise public awareness. And uh, what did happen though was nothing, absolutely no response from the government um, at all. Um, I had uh, met Jancis Andrews in Gibson's, actually. Another woman and I went over and we met um, Jancis and 
a couple of members from the University Women's Club of Seashelt who were keenly interested in something being done for the women and children of Bountiful. And I have to say, Jancis Andrews is formidable. She's a fabulous activist. She never lets up, and she is spot on. And I, ha I have a lot of adm admiration for her. She's not intimidated by anyone. Uh, and she has run into uh, a number of situations where she was perhaps in danger, but that hasn't stopped her. But what happened was absolutely nothing. No, um, no government intervention, nothing at all. Uh, we got absolutely nowhere. And that was in 2002, 2004, from Bountiful was in the news for tax fraud. Um, and it reignited my emotions around what was happening. And I sat down and I wrote an article uh, called um, Polygamy and Me, Growing Up Mormon. And I was very pleased when The Sun published it. Uh, Three-quarter page, they had their own picture of some moms in Bountiful with their little kids. And I, in that article, I wrote about my experience of being raised Mormon and my leaving and um, my mom's belief that she would practice it, polygamy, in the afterlife. What surprised me, because it was something that was so familiar to me, what surprised me was the public interest. I had was asked so many questions and um, what I did do in answer to those questions, I sat down and started writing. And that's what um, the draft of that became um, my book, uh, one of my books that I've written about polygamy, which is In Polygamy's Shadow from a Mormon childhood to a life of choice. Uh, my book is available in the Vancouver Public Library and in other libraries for anyone that is interested in reading it. Um, before In Polygamy Shadow was published, um, I asked around for endorsements for my, my, my book and I emailed uh, Craig Jones uh, Craig Jones was the lead litigator on the 2009 uh, polygamy uh, reference case in BC. And not, I, I had read his book. He had written a book about that court case. Um, it was called um, A Cruel Arithmetic Inside the Case Against Polygamy. And I, I basically read it 
it's it's fairly heavy reading, uh, a lot of legal uh, jargon, but I couldn't put it down. And so when um, my manuscript was finished, I emailed him and I said, I've written, just set out just a little bit about my background and said, I've written this book. Would you be interested in taking a look at it um, and perhaps giving a comment? Was I ever surprised and pleased when he emailed back and said, you bet. And I sent him a PDF and he was gracious and generous in his response and his comment, which I've included on the part, partial on the back cover of my book. So I was really pleased because, uh, to receive his endorsement because I did respect the work that he had done and that what he was doing. Um, nothing was happening uh, in Bountiful, absolutely nothing. The RCMP had gathered information about the underage girls being used to produce babies. And they had 10, at the time, nine, nine underage girls. They had DNA evidence and birth certificate proof that Winston Blackmore had impregnated underage girls. And according to our sexual assault laws, he was guilty of sexual assault. Um, in 2009, one of the constable, RCMP constables filed an affidavit in the BC Supreme Court uh, na naming the uh, girls that since been raised to 10. Nothing happened. No charges were laid. Uh, no action was taken. Um, and this again, I don't understand the maneuverings of the lack of political and justice will, uh, will justice system will not to protect our vulnerable children, Canadian citizens, um, and that's still, there's still been no action on that. Uh, so I'm sure you can appreciate why when um, Daphne Bramham presented her overview and, and coverage of the trials in Cranbrook, I was here like a shot. Um, my conviction to it remains to raise public awareness. Um, on the... 2009 polygamy uh, reference, or it's actually a constitutional challenge. Um, in 2011, Judge Bowman ruled that polygamy is harmful to women, children, and society. And that, even with that ruling, that's taken a few more years for the charges that have been laid this in the past year um, against the uh, parents who trafficked their 13-year-old daughter to the states. This has been this has been going on for years, and also uh, the two leaders in Bountiful who have been charged with uh, polygamy. The one uh, 
they're, they have been claiming pro protection under the 1982 Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is in, uh, there's two acts uh, in that they've been using to battle each other. One is in the late 1800s, the criminal code uh, has a section which de is, is very clearly sets out that polygamy is a criminal act and the uh, bountiful polygamists have been claiming protection under the 1982 uh, charter. And this is where the constitutional uh, challenge came in. This is where uh, perhaps and why the gray area has yet to be decided. I would like to see it firmly um, set out. Uh, and I understand that the uh, two men, Winston Blackmore and James Oler, have appealed their convictions for polygamy and it is going to the Supreme Court um, of Canada rather than, uh, which is higher of course than our provincial court. Um, I thought uh, I would do, um, I'm open to any questions at all, but I thought before I do that I would read uh, just a little bit from my book. Um, to set it up, uh, I'm going to read just a short segment just to give you an idea of the environment that I grew up in and its impact on the family. Um, my One thing about Mormonism, the mainstream Mormonism, um, it is all about church and about rules and it's not about connection within the family the church comes first um, which is con is the public relations uh, message from the Mormon church is families are forever when in reality the church is where the focus is not the family um, okay this one was fun this is just a short little one just to set this one up the news titans and this is after we moved to Richmond. In Richmond, mom and dad started each morning with family prayer before breakfast, an entirely new practice. We had never had morning prayer in Gibson's. I knelt on the floor beside my chair with the rest of the family while my porridge pooled, cooled in a bowl on the table. Dad usually prayed. He went on and on about everything he was thankful for and everything he wanted help with. He ended with a blessing on the food. Every so often, he would pick one of us to say the prayer. When he chose me, I had it down to three sentences so I could eat my porridge before the skin formed on top. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this food and ask you to bless it. Please keep us all safe during the day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. There was no escape from the ritual of morning prayer. I was forced to my knees by the unspoken consequences if I didn't. Seared into my mind and imprinted in the cells of my body was the memory of my older sister Sarah protesting about home Sunday school 
when she was fourteen. It had happened when we lived in the house on the hill at Gibson's. Why do we have to have damn Sunday school anyway? She had complained one sweltering Sunday morning as we gathered in the living room. None of my friends have to. Dad exploded. He kicked over a chair with a bang and ripped off his belt. Sarah became a statue. I stopped breathing. Into your bedroom now. I'll teach you what's right, and I'll teach you to swear. The door slammed shut, but we heard everything. Mom stood by and said nothing. Michael and Ian were quiet. I cringed and cried as Dad's belt thudded against the clothes on Sarah's body and slapped the bare skin of her arms and legs. She howled. I wanted to scream, Stop, Dad, no, Dad, no. My voice stayed inside. What if he turned on me? I was ashamed of my cowardice. It didn't matter that I was only nine years old then. I had let Sarah down. She stayed in our, our bedroom all that afternoon after Dad attacked her. I crept around and didn't have the words to tell her how sorry I was. That's the, the type of environment that uh, I was raised in as a mainstream Mormon, and I'm aware that my experience is not unique. Um, for those that it, it isn't, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that that does happen, um, but that wasn't the case in my, in my family and in other families that I'm aware of. I thought I'd read you a little bit from my chapter on polygamy. The man entered our lives on a sunburned day at the end of May when I was 11. Dad was at his bishopric meeting after Sunday school. Mom was lingering in front of the chapel with my younger brothers, and Rob was inside putting away the sacrament trays. Sarah, Janice, and I had decided to wait in the car in the parking lot. As we sauntered toward the station wagon, a balding man dashed for our car with his hand outstretched. He left a young pregnant woman and a bunch of kids in front of the building next to the chapel. He smiled straight at Sarah and reached for the door handle. He was fat and had pointy little teeth. Let me do that for you, he said with an oily snigger. My stomach turned over. His tone of voice was the same kind the boys at school used when they told dirty, dirty jokes and laughed during recess. Why was he talking to her like that? Sarah was only 16 and he was an old man. He wasn't a member of the Richmond congregation. I had never seen him before. His hand on our car door and the way he ogled and talked to Sarah were all wrong. It happened so fast, yet unfolded in slow motion. Sarah's eyes widened, her face reddened, and she climbed into the back seat without saying anything. Janice and I followed. The man shut our car door and faded back to the woman and children. The woman had long hair. Most of the women in the ward wore their hair short. That was weird, Janice said. What a creepy man. He's a stranger, and he touched our car door. Ooh, what's the matter with him, anyway? 
I think he's got a crush on you, I said to Sarah. But he's old enough to be a grandfather. Yuck. She held her nose and screwed up her face. We burst out laughing. I laughed until my stomach hurt and I felt safe again. We didn't unroll the windows to let the heat out of the car until we were sure that the man was gone. None of the men at church flirted with Sarah, though they might glance at her. Everyone thought she was beautiful, including me. The missionaries made excuses, dropping off church books, asking for help to organize a young people's event, to come over during the week after she got home from school. The air sparked with electricity when they were around her. At Sunday dinner that day, Mom passed Dad the platter of fried chicken. Those two families who were here from the Creston area this morning, did the men come out to priesthood meeting before Sunday school? She held on to the platter while she waited for his answer. Sarah, Janice, and I glanced at each other, then down at our plates. Dad shook his head. No, I, I never got a chance to meet them. They were out of the chapel before I could introduce myself. I had to go right into my meeting. He speared a drumstick with his fork, put it on his plate, and passed the platter to Rob. There's something funny about them, Mum said. I pictured the man rushing over to Sarah and the young woman's pregnant belly while she stood and watched blankly. What do you mean? I didn't notice anything from the front. I don't think they're mainstream Mormons, Mum lowered her voice. The men are too old to have such young wives. Both of the women wore shapeless dresses and had long hair. She bit her lip. If they come back, I'll find out. I'll talk to them. That evening, the people we had seen in the morning were at sacrament meeting. The man who had opened our car door and the young woman and children with him, plus the older man and his family Mum had noticed. A middle-aged woman was also with them. She wore a blue dress that came halfway between her knees and ankles, and her hair was twisted in a bun. She wasn't wearing any makeup. They all sat together in the back rows of the chapel. I kept glancing at them. I couldn't stop myself. After the service, I hung around on the grass in front of the chapel and watched Dad introduce himself and shake hands with the two men. He smiled and chatted, just as he did with all the men in our ward, while the young women and children stood off to the side. Mom talked to the woman in the blue dress. On the drive home, she said to Dad, What did I tell you? I was right, wasn't I? She was smug, but I noticed a thin edge in her voice. They're from Bountiful. I knew it. I just knew it. Dad kept his eyes on the road. I knew about polygamy in the church from the stories Mum had told, but I had never heard polygamy talked about at church. The fundamental Mormons believed that by practicing polygamy, they were being true to the teachings of Joseph Smith. The more wives the men had, the more blessings they would have in heaven. They maintained that they were living God's gospel here on earth. The two men and their wives from Bountiful were reminders of the unspoken controversy that lurked below the surface of mainstream Mormonism. 
Joseph Smith had introduced polygamy as part of the founding doctrine of his church. Dad rarely talked about his Mormon grandfather and his two grandmothers, or that other ancestors were also polygamous. Mom kept quiet about hers. Mom believed in theory that polygamy was ordained by God, although she was thankful as a mainstream Mormon that she didn't have to share dad with other women, at least not here on earth. I doubt she had any reason to think about it. I had no idea whether she ever worried that dad might want to marry a younger woman as a second wife. The older woman is the first wife of one of the men, Mom said to Dad on the drive home. She told me it was wonderful living, plural marriage. She works as a nurse, while the second wife takes care of the house and the children. She invited us to come up to Creston and stay. I was polite to her, but that's the last thing I would ever want to do. For a moment, I thought she was going to cry. I held my breath and hoped that what she said hadn't made Dad angry. I hated it when they were nasty to each other, although Dad never hit Mom. I'll talk to the bishop. If they come back, we'll keep an eye on them. Don't go getting your knickers in a knot. It's probably nothing. None of us girls had told Mom about the man who opened our car door for Sarah. I didn't want to be the one. Mom was upset enough already. It wasn't the kind of thing any of us would ever talk to Dad about. That night, I sat on the end of Sarah's bed and talked to her. What if Dad decides to become a fundamentalist Mormon, I whispered, half expecting Dad to be listening outside the door. I couldn't stand it if he gave you to that disgusting old man as a wife. What if he decides to give Janice and me away too? No, no, he would never do that. He's got too much going for him here in the ward. All that matters to him is being in the bishopric. Besides, Rick has already asked me to marry him. There's nothing for you to worry about, honey. Dad's not going to give you away. She patted my hand. I'm leaving home soon, and I'll be out of Dad's reach. Sarah was registered with a business college to take typing and shorthand. She had a special scholarship for students who couldn't afford to pay. As soon as I have a secretarial certificate, I can find a job. That night, I woke with a start in the middle of a dream. In the dream, Sarah, dressed in a long white gown, stood beside the old man who had opened our station wagon door for her. He had his arm around her shoulder, and there was a grin on his face. Janice and I stood off to the side, both of us dressed in the same kind of white gown. The families from Bountiful were back the following week for Sunday school. After service, the men mingled with the men of our ward in front of the chapel, and the older women chatted with the women members. The young wives stood to one side with their kids and waited. The same old man pushed close to Sarah beside me in the crowd. The skin on his neck hung loose. I shuddered. He smiled and reached his hand out to shake Sarah's. She pretended not to notice. He kept smiling and moved closer. I checked around for Mom. She wasn't in sight. I was the only one who appeared to notice. Sarah moved away and headed for our station wagon. 
The man ran panting after her and made it to our car door in time to wrench it open before she got there. She climbed in, averting her eyes. My stomach was queasy. I wanted to do something to protect Sarah, but what? A few cars away, the man's pregnant wife, a baby on her hip, a diaper bag over her shoulder, and two toddlers clinging to her legs struggled to open their car door. She had a blank expression on her face as she focused on her kids. She didn't look over at our, our station wagon. It wasn't right. How could her husband fawn over Sarah while ignoring his wife's struggle with their children and the car door? And I'm going to stop right there. And um, I'm open to any questions that you have um, that I can answer. Okay, thank you, Maggie. It was very interesting.